Bible, if you could, and turn with me to page 1001. We started looking at this great letter to the Hebrews last week, and we're looking at the second half of chapter 1 this morning. So page 1001. When you're there, I'll pray and then read it to us. And so, almighty God, we want to pray as we've been thinking all morning, praising you for your son, the Lord Jesus, the one who is supreme and preeminent. And we pray simply this morning that you would draw us closer to him, give us a a deeper understanding of him, and hearts that are more receptive to all that he has to say. And we pray it in his name and for his glory. Amen. Let me read to us then from Hebrews chapter 1, and uh, starting at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Very much hope you want to keep that open in front of you. There's also an outline uh, on the back of the notice sheet. And I want to start this morning, if I may, um, with some do's and don'ts, courtesy of the, the letter to the Hebrews. We're not a 100% sure who wrote this letter. It's called a word of exhortation uh, at the end of the book. Some people say that it's the Apostle Paul. Some say it's definitely not him. And so to spare ourselves from just having to refer to the author of the letter all the way through, preachers 
sometimes call him Professor Hebrews or whatever else. I'm going with Mr. Hebrews, so that's, I don't know why he has to be a professor. So Mr. Hebrews it is, and he's writing to some youngish Christians who have made a great start to the Christian life, but they're starting to struggle. Uh, and I just want us to flick on to chapter 10, if we might, so that we can see one of the reasons why. So if you can flick forward a few pages, please, to 1007, 1007. And we'll see why these guys were finding it difficult. Page 1007, the right-hand column there. Let me start reading from verse 32. This is their backstory. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You'll see the different phases of their testimony. They'd made a great start to the Christian life. They'd been willing to endure horrible suffering for their faith. Can you imagine Maybe some of you come from parts of the world where this is the case, where you would be put in prison for no other reason than that you were a Christian, or you have your family home taken away from you just because of your faith. These guys had experienced all of that, they'd endured all of that, and even joyfully, we're told, but understandably it had taken a toll. And so as a church, some of them at least were beginning to look back over their shoulder at the life that they'd left behind before they became Christians, and they were starting to wonder, wouldn't it just be a little bit easier if we went back to where we were before? So they needed this fresh shot of endurance, and that's what Mr. Hebrews is giving them in a letter that's full of warnings and encouragements, warnings and encouragements all the way through. Here's some of the the do's and don'ts. Negatively, he says, don't drift away or fall away from Jesus. Don't throw away your confidence, as we've just read. Don't refuse to listen to God. Don't harden your heart to his word. Don't neglect meeting together and encouraging one another. Do positively pay much closer attention to Jesus Christ. Do strive to enter God's rest. Do draw near to God and hold fast to him. Do exhort one another to please God. Do run with endurance the race that he has set before you. Pursue the holiness without which no one will see God. Do offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and all. And most of all, as we've said already this morning, consider Christ. Fix your eyes on him. He is the author. He is the perfecter of your faith. He is the reason to keep going. And he is the strength to do so. So fix your eyes on him so that you can guard yourself against all of the warnings and heed all of the encouragements. Fix your eyes on him. And so throughout the letter, he's, fit, he's portraying this wonderful picture of Jesus 
and telling us to think about him. We're going to continue to do that this morning with the rest of the introduction back in chapter 1. The introduction runs from chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 2 verse 4 in the letter, then we'll move on and see what comes next. We did the first part of the introduction last week, and we'll try and finish it off this morning. First then from verses 5 to 14 of chapter 1, if you're there, behold the Son who reigns. And this might sound a little bit weird, but I'm going to spend this first point telling you something that you, I'm pretty sure most of you already know, but that you never even give a second thought to in most of your waking hours. And it's that Jesus is superior to angels. That's the argument of verse 5 through to verse 14. We'll think why we have to be told that in the second point. But that was the point of verse 4. If you glance up, the Son has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then to prove his point, Mr. Hebrews gives us this Old Testament masterclass. Last week we had seven statements about Jesus and his greatness. Now we have seven Old Testament quotations that expand upon and press home the point that he's been making. But the headline is, this is why it would be really daft to drift away from Jesus. It's why it would be so sinful. And it's because of how great he is, greater than anyone and anything. So first, pay attention to Jesus because he's the unique son. The the seven quotations come in three pairs, and then there's a conclusion at the end. And this first pair is about the unique relationship that the son, Jesus, enjoys with God the Father. So verse 5, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you, or again I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So the angels are pretty special beings in the Bible. There are even a few places where collectively in the Old Testament they're referred to as sons of God. But not even the greatest angel is ever referred to individually as the son of God. That title was reserved for God's Uh, Messiah King in the Old Testament. And these quotes make that point. Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, both refer to this anointed king to whom God gives an enormous and eternal kingdom. In, In Psalm 2, all the nations of the world are given to the Son. In 2 Samuel 7, God loves the Son and gives him a forever kingdom. And the unique Son of whom those verses speak is, of course, Jesus. Not just in his life, supremely in view here is his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and God has exalted him as the forever king of every tribe and tongue and nation. Uh, Google tells me there are 58 million square miles of land on planet earth, making up 195 countries, the A to Z, Albania and Afghanistan through to Zambia and Zimbabwe. And some of them have kings and queens, and some of them have presidents, and some of them have prime ministers. But there is one king who is the rightful, the legitimate, the forever sovereign of every square inch of the planet. And it's not an angel. It's the son, Jesus. That's why we'd be crazy to drift away from him. Second, he's worshipped as God, verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame 
of fires. Um, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 104 this time, like I say, on the sheet. And again, there's this contrast between the sun and angels. The sun is the firstborn. It's uh, another title of rank and honor. Psalm 89 says the firstborn is the highest king of all the earth. And so great is Jesus that even angels worship him. Again, verse 6 refers almost certainly not to Jesus' incarnation, but to his exaltation. So how is it that angels responded to Jesus after his resurrection when he ascended back to heaven? Answer, they didn't greet him in the way that we would greet one another after Christmas when we come back with a handshake or a hug or a fist pump or a high five or whatever. They literally worship him. So Jesus is God to be worshipped. Even the angels know that. But just to state the obvious, angels aren't God. Verse 7 says they're servants, they're ministers, they're messengers, they're agents. They are beings, heavenly beings, through whom God acts and speaks. Basically, couriers or delivery men from on high. So let's imagine that King Charles or Camilla want to invite you round for tea. And so they send a, a courier or a courtier around with the invitation. I'm sure this happens to some of you all of the time. It doesn't happen to me very much. But I hope that when the courier arrives with your special kind of wax-sealed invitation, you'll treat the courier with some sort of respect and courtesy as you would any human being. But my hunch is... You're not going to bow in front of the courier or curtsy or start referring to them as your highness because you know they're just a messenger and they're nowhere near on the same level as the king himself. Well, the writer's saying how weird it would be to be more excited about angels and something that they said than about the king and the word of the gospel that he has declared. He's not a courier. He's the God that angels worship, so of course you want to keep listening to him. Again, we'll think more about why Hebrews is saying all of this in a bit, but here's reason three first. Pay attention to Jesus because he's eternal and unchanging. Uh, next two quotations, Psalm 45, 102, they're a bit longer, but I think their message is pretty clear, isn't it? Verse 8, of the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. When we talk about human kingdoms, we know that kings, queens, they reign for a while, and then they're gone. Sometimes a very long while, but they go eventually. And some are good, but many rule with cruelty and selfishness. Lots of human leaders mistreat their subjects, don't they? They take advantage of them. And we're just being told the sun is very different. The son throughout his life, throughout his heavenly reign, has always shunned everything that is evil and always loved all that is righteous. And his throne 
lasts forever and ever and ever because he is God, the creator of all that is seen and unseen. I don't know if you ever as a child or in playing with a child made a, a house out of Lego and you get your base, you get your bricks, you start building it up. If you've got a pretty sophisticated set, you might have the odd door or, or window. And if you've got a lot of patience, you end up with a roof at the top. That's what the, the son did as he was making the universe. Or you've sat there with your plasticine trying to mold it into something. I never really got beyond a worm or a kind of baguette. That was kind of the extent of my creativity. But some people, you know, they get a, a small side plate or a little cup or a beaker, something like that. Well, verse 10 says, the entire heavenly host is the work of the sun's hands. He thought, you know what, I'm just going to put the sun here and I'm going to put the Milky Way over there and I'm going to make the northern lights really, really pretty because he is the majestic creator of everything. And the other thought that goes along with this here, I don't know if you've got a favorite piece of clothing at the moment. Maybe you're wearing it at the moment. Maybe you've got a jacket or a jumper and you, stuff. You just really love it. And when you were buying it, you felt really good about yourself when you were putting it on and you're all excited about it. And you have a little spring in your step whenever you leave the house with it on. You love wearing it. The, the newsflash, I know some of you don't really think about what you wear and we can talk about that afterwards, but uh, we, we all know that that garment, however special it is to you, is not going to last forever. It's going to get a little bit tired at some point. It's going to start showing signs of wear and tear. You'll get a hole in it somewhere because you'll snag it on something or you'll tip, I don't know, some sauce all down yourself and put a great big stain on it. It's going to end up in a, in a charity shop or in a bin. Sorry to do that to you. Don't want to break your heart, but that's the reality. And the verse says, the psalm says, well, the created world is like that. Sun, the moon, the planets, the stars, they, they seem so permanent to us. But one day, Jesus is just going to roll them up like a garment that's had its day. And the world as we know it will perish, but not the sun. It's not talking literally, it's just poetry, but it makes the point fabulously, doesn't it? Because the sun is eternal, and while everything else changes, he stays the same. He's the one who's the same yesterday and today and forever. So again, why would you stop listening to the voice of the sun, the one who is this great, the unchanging and uncreated creator. Finally, he's the, he is enthroned forever. The last quotation from Psalm 110. Do you notice that the chapter in the, the Old Testament part of the Bible that's quoted more than any other in the New Testament, um, eight times in just the letter to the Hebrews alone. And it's a fitting climax to this set of seven. It's saying again that he is enthroned forever at the right hand of God. Say so angels in the Bible uh, occasionally stand in the presence of God, but they never sit down, and they certainly never share his throne. As verse 14 says, they're, just, they're ministering spirits, heavenly beings sent out by God to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. But behold, the Son who reigns. 
He is the divine son. He's the eternal creator, the forever king. He's far above all. And he sits, he shares the throne with God the Father. Now, you know how when you blow into a balloon, if you've got enough puff, with every additional breath, you see it getting bigger and bigger, um, blow by blow. What Mr. Hebrews is trying to do is to inflate our picture of Jesus. And these verses, I reckon, if we spend time digging into them as we've started to do today, we'll, we'll do that just, as, just about as much as any other passage in the Bible. But the reason it's all here is to ask us the question, well, how do you think you should relate to the Son? How much attention do you think you ought to pay when he speaks? And how does that compare with the way that we have or haven't been listening to him in the last week? Indeed, how big a scandal do you think it would be if people were to start drifting away from him just because we wanted a slightly easier life? How mad would we have to be to have other voices as the functioning center and functioning authority and rule in our life? Our second point is really, therefore, just the application uh, to everything we've been thinking already. Listen to the Son who saves, and it's verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2. And as I read them, you'll see why, I hope, Mr. Hebrews has been getting so excited about angels all the way through chapter 1, even though we rarely give them a second thought, many of us. Verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Um, lots of the people in the, the church of the Hebrews had become Christians from a Jewish background. As we read it, it seems that while they remained Jews, their life had been relatively easy. So they were still a, a minority uh, under Roman rule, but they enjoyed a fair bit of protection under Roman law. So they weren't being thrown in prison or having their houses confiscated for being Jews. That stuff only started happening after they started listening to and following the Son. So you can see how understandable it would be that when they began to get a bit weary in their faith as the heat was turned up from outside, the, the tempting thing to do was to turn their back on Jesus and to return to their, their old way of life that was more socially acceptable and in which they'd been living according to the law of Moses. And that's where the angels come in. In verse 2, the law of Moses was declared by angels. The Old Testament itself hints that in Deuteronomy. We're told it explicitly in Acts and in uh, Galatians as well. So another way of thinking about the temptation that the Hebrews were facing to leave Jesus and go back to 
Moses was to talk about the temptation to stop listening to the sun and to start listening to the word of the angels instead. It's just two different ways of saying the same thing. And that's why Mr. Hebrews is saying, I want you to think about how great the sun is. I want you to think about how far superior he is to angels. And it's not even like he's a, it's a close contest. He's infinitely superior. God has said it in all of these Old Testament quotations. The angels themselves know it. That's why they worship the sun. So if God has said it and the angels believe it, then why on earth would you go away from the supreme sun and back to what they'd been talking about in the Old Testament? Now, I, I realize there won't be many here whose spiritual battle in life is a temptation to become an, an Old Testament or to remain an Old Testament Jew and to obey the Mosaic law rather than to listen to Jesus. I do know a couple of people who have had that temptation in life, but it's not all that common. Therefore, this comparison between angels and the sun may not seem quite as, as relevant to us. But every single one of us, and I guess you would admit this to be true, every single one of us is tempted to drift degree by degree away from a life of wholehearted commitment to Jesus and listening to him into a, a kind of toned down version of faith that is more socially acceptable in our own particular context. I think I could go so far as to say, put me up on this if you want to afterwards, if you're not aware in yourself of that pull and that inner drift towards a life that's easier rather than to a life of worship and service, my hunch would be you've probably started to drift already or that maybe you were never anchored to Jesus in the first place. Spiritual weariness, as we called it last week, is a reality for absolutely every Christian. Different degrees, different people, different times. But whether it's the fight against sin, sins of materialism, or pride, or lust, or success and uh, achievement of, of ourselves or of our kids for some of us, or whether it's the, the active opposition of the world to the things that we believe and, and hold dearly, or even if it's just the, the exhausting monotony of the long haul of Christian living and serving, as Hebrew says, our hands droop, our knees weaken, and we feel that pull, I think all of us, to an easier life in which we might give Jesus some of our heart and some of our devotion and listen to him some of the times about some of the things that he says, but allow other voices to dominate when the rubber hits the road. And Hebrews is saying that would be a grave mistake. Uh, the wording of verse one's striking, isn't it? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. The striking thing about that is that the danger for, for most of us, and I, I think experience would bear this out, 
isn't that we turn and sprint away from Jesus at 100 miles an hour, denouncing everything that we believe and embracing a completely different life from day one. That's rarely the danger. The danger is of gradual drift, but that might end up in the same place. And the, the drift away word is used elsewhere when a, a ring slips off a finger. I told some of you that a friend of mine went for a swim on his honeymoon um, in the cold of the Irish Sea. His brand new wedding ring, handmade by his mother-in-law, uh, slipped off his finger and was lost forever. And uh, he had to tell her and just about lived to tell the tale. Um, the, the words used when something slips your mind, you know, there's a, a good intention, something you intend to do, someone's birthday, you know you're going to get them a card and a present or something, but you, and you don't mean to forget, but you do, it just sort of drifts away from you. The word mostly relates to the sea, though. And you picture a boat that was tethered neatly, and then it slips its anchor, and it starts, you're a holiday maker on a lilac, and they're just dozing off, enjoying the sun, and the, the danger doesn't come with a big red flashing light and a siren. It's just subtle. It's just gradual. You just take up a hobby that keeps you or your family from going to church quite as much. Or you decide you're, you're just too busy this year to commit to a small group or to meeting up with a friend to read the Bible. And you, you find it so hard to find a regular time to read your Bible and pray, because you never have the same routine any two days of the week. And you really do like this guy or this girl. And this move would be really good for your career, even if there's no good church nearby. And you're not really thinking about it, but you are drifting. Um, Mr. Hebrews gives us the stick and then the carrot, the stick, verse 2, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So like in, in any other society, the Old Testament had lots of laws uh, and some were about serious and deliberate offenses like murder and some were about slightly less serious offenses, like if you accidentally kill your neighbor's sheep or something like, like that. But the, the point is that every act of, I don't know how you accidentally kill your neighbor's sheep, but maybe it could happen, you're reversing your tractor, I don't know. But the, the point is that every act of law-breaking had a just and proportionate penalty attached to it. You, you couldn't just ignore God's law given by the angels and get away with it. And so Mr. Hebrews says it stands to reason, doesn't it? If you, you couldn't dodge the punishment when you ignored a message that was just delivered by angels, of course you're not going to escape if you ignore the word of the exalted son. And anyone who's even remotely weary or unwilling or cold or drifting in their faith will need that warning. It's not addressed to the, the Christian who catches themselves sinning or misses a prayer meeting every once in a while. It's not meant to rob us of the assurance that is ours in Christ. But it is meant to wake us up to the danger of drifting. One commentator puts it like this. These warnings 
are not designed to rob Christian people of hope, but to steer them away from danger in order to preserve them so that they might persevere and inherit what has been promised. Like the, the things at the side of the bowling alley. They're just there to help the ball get to the end. They're not harmful. I was out um, walking with someone in the hills once, and without realizing it, the fog was down a bit, and they got a little bit close to the edge of a cliff. Uh, and then the fog lifted, and I saw that they were standing next to a cliff, and they hadn't seen just yet. Tell me, what, you, what do you think love does at that moment? Does love at that moment respect their freedom to walk wherever they want to in life? Does love celebrate the fact that they've wanted to throw off the restrictive shackles of the narrow path and to go wherever their heart would lead them? Or does love warn them so that they stay alive? That's what the warnings of Hebrews are here to do. And we all need to hear this warning. And it's not trifling. We can help each other with it. We're meant to help each other with it. That's the point of the church. But fundamentally, I can't pay attention to Jesus for you and you can't do it for me. There's every chance that someone sitting here this morning is thinking, you know what, I think I might be drifting. Uh, over Christmas, lots of us go away from St. Andrews, routines change. Maybe you have drifted a meter or two. Maybe it's a country mile. Well, we need to pay much more careful attention so that a, a moment's drift doesn't become a lifetime decision and an eternal disaster. You say, there's no way I'd do that. I've got it all under control, which is exactly what everyone else who's ever abandoned Jesus said as well. That is the stick. Happily, we can end with the carrot of a great salvation. And because Christians have a very, very great savior, we have a very, very great salvation. Uh, our writer makes the, the point in four quick ways in verses three and four that the gospel of our salvation was first declared by the Lord Jesus himself and then attested by the apostles who were eyewitnesses of everything that Jesus said and did. And then it was confirmed by God himself when those same apostles performed miracles as they went around preaching. And it's demonstrated too in the life of the church as the Holy Spirit gives different members of the body different gifts so that everyone can serve him. But the point he's making is that this is a verified and more certain word. The Son has spoken, and it is true. Therefore, we must pay much more careful attention to this glorious word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, our newspapers, our social media feeds, our airwaves are full of people giving us advice about how to make our life a little bit better. So eat this, don't eat that, save money by doing this uh, and not doing that. You can take up this habit and you should give up that one and you can relate to people like this and not like that. And some of it is, is fair enough. 
and useful, and you know that some of it is nonsense. But there is only one message of eternal salvation. There's only one person anywhere in the universe who can purify you of your sins. There's only one person in the whole universe who can wash your conscience clean. Only one who can give you eternal rest and a share in divine joy. There's only one who sits at the Father's right hand and is praying for you even now. There's only one who can enable you to know God personally. It's not an angel. And you can't do that for yourself, and I can't do it for you or for me. And it's not your favorite influencer or podcaster or author or commentator or hobby or TV show. None of that stuff can do any of that for you. Only the Son. And so Mr. Hebrew says, well, let's not neglect him and his word of salvation. But let's consider him and pay much closer attention to him, lest we drift. Should we pray? <coughs> Father, we confess, as the hymn writer says, that our hearts are prone to wonder. We feel it. We feel that drift can happen oh so easily in our day-to-day -day living. The pains and sorrows of life, the struggles, the pressures, opposition, many things crowd in. And in our hearts, we can drift. Um, we want to say sorry for times that we've done that. We want to say sorry if we're doing it even now. We don't want to neglect your glorious son or the gospel of our salvation. We want to pay much closer attention to him and to listen to his word and live in the light of it and do what it says. And so we pray on for this series in Hebrews and we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit that we might pay much more careful attention to all that we have seen and heard. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, the great news is that the kids are back from Sunday school in time for us to sing our final two songs, which is Jesus Shall